we thank you for the cross and for the fact that we gather today forgiven by the mercy and love of God demonstrated at the cross. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation is not, does not rest on what we achieve, but what you have secured, what your son has purchased. And that's what we celebrate today. If there is someone here who has never trusted Christ, may they be drawn by the power of the cross, that magnetic, wonderful, life-saving power of the cross itself. The message that is proclaimed there is one of eternal love. And may that touch every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. That's got to be one of my favorite songs, The Power of the Cross. So well written, wonderful tune, gets us crying, and then I have to preach. <laughs> Imagine if you <clears throat> went with a guide and a group of people to a famous art museum. You had the privilege of walking down the hallways and seeing the great works of the masters, these famous paintings that maybe you've only seen online or read about in a class. And here's your opportunity to see them, to gaze upon them, to be speechless as you contemplate the work of some masterpiece. And then your guide points to one and says to the whole class, what do you see in this painting? And to be honest, sometimes I don't see a thing. Sometimes I want to say, well, I think the guy was on crack, or, you know, or drugs or something. I, I see absolutely nothing, but I'm afraid to say that because there's a bunch of real smart people in the group, and they say, oh, the man's a genius, and I see these colors, and I see this movement. And I say, okay, maybe it's there, but I don't see it. Isn't it interesting when you get a group of people looking at the same thing that is supposed to hold tremendous value that they often see something so differently? For instance, uh, Van Gogh, the great Dutch painter, painted one of his famous paintings called The Starry Night. It's more duplicated than any, almost any other famous painting, but Van Gogh was greatly disturbed, and he painted that in a mental institution. And so what you see might be chaotic and weird and genius all at the same time, so people say. But what do you see when you look at the cross? Some people look at that and I see horror. I see tragedy. I see nonsense. Some say, I see genius, <laughs> the wisdom of God, and the power of God. Well, the passage before us is going to explain what the Apostle Paul saw. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What did he see? He saw the only hope for mankind in this thing called the cross. So we're going to survey the cross this morning and Notice that Paul gives us a couple different perspectives on it. He tells us what others think before he reveals what God thinks. 
If you look at verse 17, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Paul said, For Christ did not send me to baptize. And I love this portion of Scripture. He said, I, I baptized a few people, and he mentioned some names. And then he paused and said, Oh, yeah, by the way, I baptized the household of Stephanus. It's, it's like he didn't keep a record and he didn't remember because baptism wasn't the most important thing. It's important, but it's not the most important thing. Baptism doesn't save you. So Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, the good news about Christ, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. There is resident in the message about the cross, not the actual wooden cross, but in the message of the cross and what it displays and what transpired on the cross, there is power in the cross. And yet many people go about emptying the cross of its power by coming up with human explanations. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. For the message of the cross may be foolish, foolishness to those who are perishing, and indeed it is, but to us who are being saved, the message of the cross is the power of God. Now, later on, Paul tells us down in verse 22, the Jews demand a miraculous sign and the Greeks are seeking for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and Christ, the wisdom of God. And in those brief words, the Apostle Paul gives us three popular views on the cross. The first view of the cross actually comes from the Jews, and they say the cross is a scandal. It's a sign of great weakness. Someone died there. You'll notice in verse 23, a stumbling block to the Jews. That's what the cross is. So the crowd is a rather religious crowd that values highly keeping the law. In fact, in Judaism, that's the way one would earn favor with God is through obedience to the law. And it's not that the law was bad. It's simply that the law is impossible. It's impossible to keep. Because if you offend in one point, you are what? Guilty of it all. You offend in one point, you're a lawbreaker. How many times do you have to break the law? <laughs> Once to be called a lawbreaker. And so it's really impossible, as good as the law is, to try to gain favor with God by merely keeping the law. And yet that's what they prized. But to the Jews, the cross was a stumbling block. Now, this is a very interesting Greek word. The word stumbling in our translation is the Greek word scandalon, where we get the English word scandal. It means that it is highly offensive. A scandal has taken place. It's a sign of embarrassment and disgrace. The cross is repugnant. 
It's offensive. It's a scandal. By the way, the Romans, any kind of dignified society in Rome hated the cross. They reserved it for only their worst criminals. They wouldn't put their own citizens on the cross. Cicero said that the cross should not even be named in proper Roman society or even thought of. It was so repugnant. And yet they used it for the worst criminals. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. There was really no differentiation between hanging and being crucified. Long before crucifixion was invented, probably by barbarians on the outskirts of normal society, but then brought into Rome and other places as the worst form of punishment and execution. But cursed is anyone who is crucified or anyone who hangs on a tree. And Deuteronomy 21 is quoted in the New Testament book of Galatians chapter 3, applied to Jesus Christ. And that's what the Jews said. This guy must be cursed of God or he wouldn't be hanging on a tree. He must be a criminal or he wouldn't die such a horrible death. Remember Isaiah chapter 53? We esteemed him stricken of God, smitten of God, and afflicted. There was no beauty in him. There was no form. There was no attraction to him because we just thought he's being punished by God. He's on a cross. And people on a cross are not good people. Now you tell a Jew that their their Messiah just died on a cross, they'll say that's ridiculous. A crucified Messiah, a contradiction in terms. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. You might as well talk about an honest politician (laughs) as a crucified Savior. Might as well talk about a short-winded preacher as a crucified Messiah. It's an oxymoron. And the Jews would not take it. It's a sign of weakness. In fact, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Jews said to him, why don't you come down? Come down, perform a miracle, and we'll believe in you. That's what Paul said in verse 22. The Jews demand miraculous signs. Show us something that proves that what you say is indeed authentic. Now Christ had been doing that all through his ministry. Wonderful, miraculous signs, but they wouldn't embrace them because when your heart is turned away from God, you love darkness rather than light, and you're not really looking for the truth. That's why it's often vain for you to spend your time and effort and waste your breath in defending Christianity to someone who hates it. Share the truth. Pray that God will break up the hard-heartedness of that person's soul. But to convince them that Christianity is accurate and true and reliable and trustworthy, you haven't got a chance unless God the Spirit works in the soul of that individual because it's a sign of weakness And the cross is a sign of punishment. How did we ever come up with a symbol for Christianity of a cross? 
You can go all the way back to, I think, the second century uh, where there is the first depiction of someone hanging on a cross that is being worshipped. I mean, think about Christianity. What about a crib? A manger? That would really be cool, right? The birth of Christ is so amazing. Have a little manger hanging around your neck on a necklace. Or a throne, or a towel, or even a carpenter's bench. But to have a cross? That'd be like in France wearing a guillotine. You say, well, that's repugnant. Exactly right. That's the offense of the cross. It's a scandal. He can't be Messiah, said the religious crowd. Because this is how God punishes sinners. Matthew chapter 12, the Jews said, Teacher, we want to see some miraculous sign from you. And then when he didn't take himself down from the cross, they rejected him wholesale altogether. There was a young, very vibrant, charismatic, intelligent lawyer who was attracted to Christianity he was in South Africa and spending his time preparing for a future in law. But he began to study the Gospels and to study Christians. And he came to this conclusion, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, as the embodiment of a sacrifice, a wonderful divine teacher, but I couldn't accept him as the most perfect man ever born. Because his death on the cross, although it was a great example to the world, there was nothing in it that was mysterious or miraculous or virtuous. I could not accept an atonement on the cross. So this young lawyer went back to his homeland in India and Mahatma Gandhi influenced the nation away from Christ. Because the cross is a scandal. Paul said something else about viewing the cross. And that is that the cross itself is, well, let me put it in Paul's words. The Jews see it as a stumbling block. The Greeks see it as utter foolishness. Now, here's a very interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word moron. <laughs> I don't have to translate that one. This is moronic. This is ridiculous. This idea of someone dying on the cross and somehow gaining favor with God. The crowd here is the intellectual crowd. The intelligentsia. Those who have... Great value on, place great value on man's reason. And think that we can think our way through. And in thinking our way through, come up to what is true. Reason is above revelation, they say. The Bible is under man's critique. And so we have the, the wonderful, brilliant scholars of our day, a large majority of which see the Bible as filled with errors and a great weakness. They're absorbed in speculative philosophy. They believe that everything can be learned through the sciences, very cerebral. 
outstanding thinkers, but they see religion as the opium of the masses, a drug that everyone takes to make themselves feel better. Oxford philosopher Sir Alfred Ayer wrote this back in 1979. He said, I believe Christianity may be the worst of all religions because it rests on the allied doctrines of original sin in vicarious atonement, which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. What do you think about the cross, Mr. Philosopher from Oxford? It is outrageous, contemptible. That anything could happen on a cross that would somehow take care of your sin and mine. Foolish, nonsensical. Bill Maher, the famous entertainer and comedian, uh, has done a lot to attack religion. You have to understand that he grew up in a Roman Catholic church and was pushed in many different directions in sometimes uh, very unfortunate ways. And I think some of his reaction is a backlash to that. But Bill Maher said this, we are a nation that is unenlightened because of religion. I believe that. I think that religion stops people from thinking. I think it justifies the crazies. I think flying planes into buildings is a faith-based initiative. So he puts it all together. All faith. I think religion is a neurological disorder. If you look at it logically, it's something that was drilled into your head when you were a small child. It certainly was drilled into my head at a very young age. And we can't be responsible for what parents drill into our heads. I am embarrassed that America has been taken over by people like the evangelicals. By the way, if you don't know what he means there, he means you. <laughs> by people who do not believe in science rationality which is not true it is the 21st century people and I tell you my friend the future doesn't belong to the evangelicals the future doesn't belong to religion it belongs to reason he would view the cross does view the cross as utter foolishness along with everything else that's found in the Bible and that's what a lot of people see when they see the cross so you look at the cross, what do you see? Do you see a scandal, a sign of weakness? Maybe a great teacher who couldn't pull off his mission to change the world, who failed in, uh, in ultimately accomplishing his goal? When you look at the cross, do you see something that's totally foolish? Your reason will not allow you to somehow succumb to this low view of the world of the cross and accept God as the maker of everything and the cross as his means of redemption. But Paul doesn't stop there. There's one more view and the third view is the greatest view of all. He sees power in the cross. The message of the cross must not be emptied of its power. In verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, across all racial lines, across all gender lines, uh, across every ethnic group, 
God calls people, and Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross demonstrates both his power and his wisdom. It's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of foolishness. It is a sign of unbelievable power. And we sang about it just a moment ago, the power of the cross. Now, these individuals, we'll call them the believing crowd, and it does mention the fact that they are believers. Verse 18, God was well pleased through the foolishness of what is preached to save those who believe. Verse 21, he, he is willing to save those who put their faith and trust in him, who believe. But they're also the called. Isn't that an interesting word? If you go to the beginning of the chapter, you'll notice that Paul talks about believers as being the ones who've been called of God. And at the end of the chapter, he says, not many mighty are called. It's not the most brilliant people God goes after, according to the world's wisdom. But he goes after those who are humble enough to say, I need help. Those who are honest enough to say, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. Those who come before the revelation of God and say, I value God's truth. I value God's love. I value God's son. It is interesting when we read in 1 Corinthians that the world, verse 21, through its wisdom didn't know God. So what did God do? Through the foolishness of what was preached. That doesn't mean that the message is foolish. It means in the eyes of the world they view the message as foolish. Through what was preached, God draws people to himself and people believe and become Christians. They're the called. Called by God. God sends a call out to everyone. And he draws people by his gracious power, and they are the called. They are believers. And they experience both the wisdom of God and the power of God. I think it was Max Lucado who said, The cross is where God forgives his children without lowering his standards. What a great definition of the cross. In the cross... Of, God, of Christ we see how God can save yet righteous be. I mean, God is so holy and righteous, he can't just overlook your sin and mine. But if he punishes us for our sin, no one gets to heaven. Looking at it from a human perspective, we might say that God has a dilemma. He loves us, but he must punish us. What is he going to do? He punishes one of us who will stand for all of us, but none of us qualify. So he sends his son to be one of us. And Jesus stretches out his arms on the cross, embracing the entire world, a perfect sacrifice for all sinful humanity. And when he dies, he dies our death. He puts death to death. And he bids on us to come and to believe and to receive eternal life. 
John Newton put it this way, Thus while the cross my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of his grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief, with mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. That's the cross. Mystery of all mysteries, God dies. Mystery of all mysteries, he who knew no sin becomes sin. Mystery beyond our comprehension, if you will but believe and receive and cast your life upon this Savior, you will be forgiven forever. That's something to be reminded of. Not just every month, every day. So what's your view of the cross? Do you think it's foolishness? Do you think it's a sign of weakness? Or do you believe? And you found the cross to be the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, you know every heart here this morning and I think it's very possible in a crowd of this size, there are some who've never believed. I don't know whether they're trying to live a Christian life and maybe convince others that they are true believers or whether they know deep down in their heart they are not and they don't care if anyone else knows. You know, that's the most important thing. And Lord, you're calling today through your word, through the message in song, through the service called the Lord's Supper or Communion, you're calling souls today to believe, to change their view of the cross, and I pray that that will happen. By your Spirit, work in hearts. Create your own children through mercy and grace and forgiveness as people call upon you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.